When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome back to week two of Crash or Boom, where Real Vision investigates what's happening and what may be an inflection point in markets with some of the biggest names in finance. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, we have Andreas Steno Larson with Bob Elliott, CIO of Unlimited Funds. Let me set up the context for you. We've been talking about this all week. I hope you've been enjoying this series as much as I have. Harris Kupperman and Louis Gov uh, talked about a secular energy crunch, the return of volatility, and secular growth in EMs X China. Uh, then we had Rick Rule and Tracy Shukchart uh, talking about energy markets and policy disconnects from the laws of supply and demand, and indeed uh, the laws of physics as well. Yesterday, I spoke with Jeff Dorman, CIO of ARCA. It's really interesting to hear how a CIO thinks about the crypto markets at the highest level, talking about things like infrastructure, some of the challenges with allocation in the digital asset space. Uh, it's it, always great to have Jeff on the show with us. Uh, and it's something different from the typical kind of in the weeds crypto conversation. If you're not 100% on board with crypto, this is probably a good one for you to start to just get a sort of 50,000 foot overview sense of how these markets work and one of the smartest thinkers in the space. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, with all of that said, Andreas, over to you. I'll be back at the end of the show for some question and answers. Thanks very much, Ash, and uh, welcome to the show, Bob. It's always a great pleasure to host you here at Real Vision. And what a tremendous timing for a discussion on macro and markets, given all of the central bank meetings that we've had this week. I'd like to start with a brief summary of your takeaways from both the skip or pause from the Federal Reserve yesterday, but also from the Bank of England today. What are the pros and cons of not doing anything here, Bob? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me right here in the uh, central bank bonanza. I like to say here doesn't get more exciting than this for the uh, for the macro set. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing uh, at the big picture level, sort of sort of known as we were coming into this, was that um, you know the the major developed world central banks are looking for a reason to pause. Um, they really think that. Uh, you know, I think they're wrestling with the question of the trade-off between weakening growth and inflation. Uh, I think we're getting a good sense as to what their reaction function is and what their priorities are. And the short of that in terms of their priorities is that they're willing to stop tightening before, not just before it's certain that inflation is coming down to the mandate, to their mandates, but before it's even obvious that we're moving meaningfully in the right direction. And so what we're seeing, but you know, a little less from the Fed, a little more from the Bank of England, the ECB, uh, and and some others, is that um, you know, they're they're prioritizing their concerns about growth ahead of uh fulfilling their inflation mandate and are comfortable with a dynamic where, you know, even in the best of circumstances, inflation is moving back down to mandate, let's say in two years, and they're okay with that. So all that speaks to a set of central bank activities, at least you know, in the medium term, let's call it three, six, nine months, that are gonna be comfortable with elevated inflationary dynamics in, across these economies. Before we went on air here, Bob, I um, I made a heat map of forward pricing of all of the major central banks across the globe. And over the next 12 months, the Bank of Japan is the most hawkishly priced central bank on earth. Then you know something is wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> when's, the, um, when's the last time that happened? Probably 1989, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's got to be decades back at least. Uh, but if you look at the 
prospects for further rate hikes from the Fed, Bank of England, maybe even the ECB. Do you think there is a path ahead for them where they can actually decide on rate hikes again, despite this pause rhetoric that they've used over the past couple of meetings here? I, I mean, the short answer, I think, is no. Like, mm. I, I don't think that those central banks, in in a time frame that those of us who trade markets mm. really care about, are going to move to tighter monetary policy. I think, um, you know, they've they've basically uh, made their bed when it comes to saying that they're, you know, at, or maybe there's 25 base points more or something, but I don't really care about that. What we care about is, are they going to meaningfully reenter a tightening cycle anytime soon? And I think the answer is no. They think they've done enough. And frankly, they're making a big bet on the fact that the disinflationary forces and the work that they've done so far will eventually get inflation back down to their mandate. Now, I think the thing that's interesting about that from a trader's perspective is what that does is it puts a lot more weight on the long end of the curve. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Typically, if you were, uh, you know, if you go back to the 07 cycle or the, the 2000 cycle, when the, when the central bank stops tightening, when you get that pause, that would typically be a good indication to buy bonds, right? Because the central bank is no longer essentially dragging up the yield curve with their activities. But as we've learned in the last couple of days, it's exactly the opposite, right? Uh, bonds have been selling off despite the fact that these central banks have paused and even in some cases sort of dovishly paused relative to expectations. And the reason why that is is because the fact that they've paused before we've meaningfully gotten inflation down to mandate or close to mandate means that the inflation problem still exists, right? The risk of the inflation problem still exists. And what that means is that the long end is repricing that dynamic. Like the worst thing for the long end today is that central banks don't tighten aggressively. And the best thing is that they do. And that's a little counterintuitive, but you can see it in the market action. That's the reality of what we're seeing. And so, you know, it's up to the long end and the market-based tightening to get the job done right now. A bit of anecdotal evidence to add to your point here, uh, Bob. After the Bank of England hiked by 50 basis points in June, we saw a drop in market rates across the entire sterling yield curve. And after they paused and decided not to hike interest rates today, even the very short end of the sterling yield curve actually moved up. So your point is spot on. And uh, it, I guess it's related to sort of the market reaction function in an inflationary environment. So, Bob... How does this alter asset allocation, broadly speaking? Uh, now that central banks, at least in the eyes of the market, will allow inflation to run harder than what is uh, the target or what is demanded, how does that alter asset allocation across assets here? Well, I think the challenge is that you know most investors have some version of 60-40, mm -hmm. um, whether, they, whether they like to admit it or not, right? That's essentially what their exposures are. And, you know, what is 60-40 particularly good at? When does it outperform? It outperforms in an environment where, you know, there's disinflationary strong growth. Uh, and instead, what we're sort of seeing here is an environment of, you know, inflationary weak growth, right? Look at the UK, you know, unemployment is starting to rise. Growth is, you know, zero or a little bit worse, but inflation, core inflation, 6%. Look at the U.S. It's clearly moderating, but inflation remains elevated. Europe, basically the same story. And so if you're in that environment where you're holding, you know, 60-40 or some, something related to it, it's not a great environment. And particularly, like what we've all learned, you know, over the last few decades is that bonds are a good diversifier to stocks. And that's exactly the opposite of what's happening. And it's a little bit like how many times do you have to get slapped in the face with the fact that bonds are not a good diversifier for stocks before you finally learn that that is the case. And again, day after day after day, that keeps coming in. So what is a good diversifier? Well, um, I think part of the Part of the opportunity set is to look for other assets like commodities and gold. Like, you know, it's not actually that unusual. Gold outperforms bonds in 60% of equity drawdown periods. That's, you know, but how many people hold gold in their portfolios? I mean, like literally I start talking about gold and people's eyes glaze over and they think I'm a crazy person, right? But and everyone holds bonds, but why would you hold bonds if 
if for if 60% of the time they're the worst asset, the worst asset to hold as a diversifier to stock drawdowns than are than is gold. And then, you know, the basic question here is do you given the uncertainty, do you increase your allocations to cash relative to assets? Now that's a tough trade because typically assets outperform cash. You know, those folks who loaded up on cash earlier this year uh, are licking their wounds uh, as, you know, 60-40 and you know, diversified asset portfolios like ARPAR have done pretty well. So you have to be a little careful about that. But that's the other option is to, you know, reduce your risk given the uncertainty in the market. Everything in this interview is about how we can eventually profit from this uncertainty, whether we are in a booming scenario or in a recessionary scenario for the year ahead, Bob. Um, and I'd like your take, now that we talk about diversifiers of, uh, for portfolios, I'd like your take on energy as, an, as a diversifier as well. As far as I can see, it seems like it, it holds true diversification effects relative to the rest of the market as well. Yeah, I think uh, energy is um, is a good asset to hold in addition to uh, in addition to to the assets like like gold. Um, mm. You know, diversified commodities typically do well in these sorts of environments um, where the central bank is behind the curve on inflation, and so probably is going to be a beneficial add to a portfolio. But also runs the risk that you know assets can underperform cash and and we're sort of seeing that today a little bit in the last couple of days that you know commodities may be okay but may not survive this challenging environment. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Bob, I, uh, I have to give you a hat tip up front for uh, the way that you've... Um, kept saying that the recession uh, was not around the corner throughout the entire year. Uh, you said it in early January when everyone uh, and their mothers uh, were stuck in recessionary discussions. Um, and now I have the sense that you've started to turn around a little bit on your view from a risk reward perspective, Bob. Am I right that you see a recession as a likelier scenario for 24 than you did earlier this year? Yeah, well, I think you know. I think when we trade markets, you know, the basic, the basic thing you got to start to think about is what um, what is likely to happen relative to what's priced in. And I think people too often forget the what's priced priced in part of things. You know, you got to you got to start with what's priced in, and then you can go to what you think will transpire relative to that. And I think what we're seeing, you know, what we saw at the beginning of the year was that. Basically, everyone was pricing in the expectations of a recession. Uh, you know, there were some models a year ago that said there was 100% probability of a recession within a year, which is kind of funny, right? <laughs> Since uh, that didn't happen, um, and so you know, that's the basic that's the basic dynamic that's been priced in. You know, that was priced in. You know, a year ago didn't transpire. That's a big reason why asset prices actually did pretty well over the period. Well, now you know, I sort of uh, when people were bandying about you know, the Atlanta Fed GDP now measure of 6% and everyone was saying, oh, there's no way we're going to get into a recession anytime soon. You know, that's exactly the time when you might start to ask questions about whether um, whether there was, you know, whether we have uh, uh, the probability of a recession, you know, a year later with the tightening that we've had is certainly a lot, a lot uh, higher than zero. Uh, and with the market, you know, the equity markets are pricing in 12% earnings growth next year and 13% earnings growth in the in the in 2025. You know, that that's very high elevated earnings growth at a time when, you know, the inflationary pressures are emerging, or sorry, the the recessionary pressures are emerging, the US economy is slowing down. There's no question that there is some moderation in the US economy, and you should expect that to continue further. So it's really that gap between what's likely to transpire and expectations that's really the most interesting part of this overall dynamic. 
Bob, if we look across assets right now and look for clues on whether uh, bonds, equities, commodities, etc., are priced for a recessionary scenario, uh, let's start in the fixed income space. Uh, we still have a yield curve pointing towards cuts, especially in the second half of 24. But is a recession priced in already in fixed income space, given your view on the price action in the far end of the yield curve as well here? Yeah, well, I think what's priced into the the yield curve, and I think across a bunch of different yield curves, is um, is uh, more soft landing vibes than mm. than recession. You know, you're getting you know now we're getting the moves that you just you, we have a couple of cuts priced into 2024, um, three cuts as of uh, the end of the day yesterday. That's not quite enough cuts to be reflective of recession. Um, uh, and you know, not enough, uh, and too many cuts to be reflective of, uh, what's going too many cuts to be reflective of a, a strong growth or an inflationary dynamic. Now, I think the challenge, the real challenge here is the most likely path that we're going to see is we're going to see these inflationary dynamics emerge, you know, continue. We're going to see these central banks be, you know, I, I guess, pausing for longer rather than uh rather than hiking for hiking higher or hiking longer and so that's probably first going to create the environment where those cuts that are priced in those modest cuts are priced in are going to get priced out and then what's going to happen is that the rise in the long end is going to create the hit to asset prices which will eventually turn the economy which will eventually make the long end uh, a more interesting place and so you know the idea of trading 25 December 25s long versus short December 24s say in the US context is you know one of the more interesting dynamics right now um because you know that's kind of where in the curve we're probably going to where the two mispricings exist in the curve if we look at the ramifications for the broader economy of uh, the yield curve as it looks right now, Bob, um, it seems like the U.S. economy is at least not as sensitive to interest rates as it was in uh, 06, 07, likely as the duration of, um, of liabilities has increased since the great financial crisis. So what do you make of the yield curve in relation to the interest rate sensitivity of the broader economy here? But it's it's basically well, I think there's two things it's saying. One is it's based you know, the the yield curve and particularly the the significant inversion in the yield curve was kind of reflective of the fact that people thought that the and still kind of think that the economy is is very sensitive to that short end and and that you know the fact that the Fed has raised the short end mean will eventually mean uh, that you know cuts will will come, but you know the bond market and particularly the short rate market has kind of been wrong, you know, it's been deeply wrong on that point over and over and over again in the last 18 or 24 months. And so I, I think that's that's sort of the fundamental mistake that's going on, which is like, given, you know, the restructuring of the U.S. economy following the financial crisis, the sensitivity of corporations and households to rising rates, particularly in the short end, has gone down a lot. And so, you know, for most households, if you know, mortgage rates are seven or eight percent. Doesn't really matter. They've already locked in their low rate. The same thing is true for corporations. And so, I think people have overpriced the sensitivity. They've looked at something. They've said, "Hey, look, it's the you know how many times have we heard the fastest tightening cycle since you know forever." And you look at it and you say, "No, but you have to get down to the nuts and bolts and the pieces." And how does that tightening cycle actually work in the U.S. context? And the answer is, it's not having much effect on most folks. And so instead, the way this economy and the way this market is going to slow down is through falling asset prices, which are going to create a slowing of demand and a rising savings rate. But the way that has to work is not through rising long rates, which, you know, the long rate and the discount rate is embedded in all financial assets. That then hits starts to hit stocks. A rising long rate hits stocks like the market action we're seeing right now, right? Except we need probably, you know, 50 or 75 basis points more on the bond side of things and maybe 15% more on the stock side of things to start to make a meaningful impact on, on the economy and start to create that slowdown. And so that's kind of the dynamic that we see. We have an asset, 
what I like to say is like, we have an asset price problem in the US. Uh, we don't have a, a, a price of credit problem. We have an asset price problem uh, because of the low sensitivity of the economy to those interest rates. Bob, if we look at um, an interesting part of the fixed income market, the so-called uh, inflation-protected market, uh, we already get uh, questions on, on that uh, particular part of the market relative to our discussion on an inflationary environment with low growth. So what do you make of the TIPS market as a diversifier or as an addition to a portfolio, uh, given your view of high inflation relative to growth here? Well, first of all, I love that we're having a conversation about tips. I mean, it doesn't get get any better than uh, talking real interest rates. It's not that's not the sort of usual conversation that uh, that folks are are thinking about, which is but it's good because you know I think let's first just talk about how you think about tips, which I think is a, is important, particularly in an inflationary dynamic, because I think a lot of people are sitting here looking at it and they're going, wow, break even inflation is, you know, I don't know, it's basically stuck at 2%, you know, or so close to 2%, and it's not really moving around, despite the fact that we're getting this inflationary dynamic. You know, kind of how can that be? And the answer is, um, if you've traded the tips market, it's important that you to see that there's two ways an inflationary dynamic can resolve itself. The first way is that break-even inflation can rise, uh, and that's certainly one of the ways you know, and and that mostly what you see is you see nominal yields rise more than you see real interest rates. But the other way it can resolve itself, particularly on the long end, is that if there's expectations of elevated inflationary pressures over a long period of time, what the way that that can get resolved is the central bank can respond through elevated real interest rates, right? So if you if if uh, you can get that two percent inflation outcome. Uh, that you know basically is being priced in the market as long as real interest rates are held higher for longer, and that's essentially what we're seeing in this market is a real is a is a real circumstance where real interest rates have risen a lot. This, you know the inflationary pressures have led to elevated real interest rates, not really that elevated break evens, and mm. that those um, those real interest rates I think reflect the reality that we probably need higher real rates for longer, and that you know. It, you know, real rates, let's be honest, at you know, in the mid twos, in the in you know, two and two and a quarter, two fifty, like, you know, you're starting to get something that has real value in it, um, that you might not see in the nominals. Like if I, you know, just for perspective, like the the greatest, you know, tips trade <clears throat> happened um right in the middle of the financial crisis. And tips were at 325. So, I mean, that gives you a sense as to long dated tips were at 325. So, you know, we're not, we've gone a long way <laughs> from where we were in terms of, you know, tips being negative yielding to being yielding into the twos. As you get up to the two and a half range, like, you know, you start to get very attractive long term returns coming from those securities. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Looking at real rates of, say, two and a quarter or two and a half, um, even further out the curve, uh, Bob, we typically have a discussion as well around risk premiums in equity space at such a juncture, right? Uh, and various measures of um, risk premiums of, of equities are at decade lows, and we probably even need to go back to before the great financial crisis to find similar uh, gauges of, of or levels of risk premiums. So what do you make of the equity space in relation to these elevated real rates? Uh, equities are really expensive. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's no, there's really no beating around the bush on that. Like, um, you know, we have, uh, we, if if you just think about it from from an equity perspective, let's just say I don't know. Let's let's call the S and P five hundred, you know, at twenty times give or take, right? That's a five percent yield. Well, if you look at other points in the capital structure, this is, I, I know you talked about real rates, but I like to start, you know, look at other points in the capital structure. Let's look at I don't know uh, bank loans, right? Slightly lower credit quality than the S and P five hundred, but still like you know, top of the capital structure uh, when you get your secured bank loans, and those are yielding 10. So the question is like, okay, but to, in order to be indifferent between holding bank loans and uh, and holding stocks, 
Bank loans yield 10, stocks yield five. Uh, you know, how much earnings growth are you going to have to get in order to be indifferent between those two, right? Because, you know, stocks have a lot more volatility and are low, you know, the lowest point of the capital structure. Um, you know, I think it starts to raise real questions about why would you, why would you go for equities in such an environment when, you know, such relatively significant uh, earnings growth is priced into the equity market when there are other yielding opportunities that are out there uh, that are, you know, giving you something that is, um, you know, in some cases as high as double digits for things that are like in, in the B's in terms of credit quality. And so I think, you know, real rates are just another extension of that, which is like, why would you, you know, if I can get essentially a guaranteed, you know, two and a half percent real return, to be clear, with zero risk, right? That's, you know, the, the, if you buy tip and it's yielding two and a half percent, like on a real yield basis, you will get two and a half percent. That is a guarantee, right? You will get two and a half percent real. That's how it works with no risk. Like, you know, how good do equities have to look over long periods of time? What are equity real returns? They're more like five, but you take on, you know, 16% volatility. Is it really a good trade-off? I think that's, these are the types of questions, the capital structure questions that investors are going to increasingly be asking themselves. And increasingly, the answer is stocks don't make sense relative to all these other opportunities, these yielding opportunities in the market. Bob, if we look at the price trends over the past, say, six to eight weeks with improving uh, price action in oil, uh, improving price action in several industrial commodities, uh, and also improving price action, at least if we look uh, a few weeks back, in cyclical equities relative to defensive equities. I know that the trend has turned a little bit on that one. It seems like there is some kind of narrative brewing in the market that there is a cyclical upswing on its way here. At least you could, it is tempting to make that conclusion. So if we look into 2024 um, with these price trends in mind, do you find any reasons to believe that we could get a further cyclical upswing in risk assets here? It's gonna to be tough, uh, and 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 the reason why that is is that um, it's pretty tough to get. Um, well, I should say I think it's gonna to be tough, but you got to start with what's priced in. And so, if you look at something like uh, cyclical stocks, uh, growth stocks, stuff like that, like extraordinarily good outcomes are being priced into cyclical stocks and and growth stocks. I think the store, you know, so it's going to be pretty tough in that environment, particularly since so many of them are long duration in nature in an environment of rising interest rates, an environment of the slowing economy. Uh, that sort of constellation of pressures is not a very good pressure for cyclical stocks, particularly given how elevated the pricing is. Mm. I think the commodity complex is a little more complicated because you got to roll up your sleeves and think about all the supply and demand dynamics that are going on. You know, if, if Saudi Arabia was pumping at full capacity, uh, you know, then, uh, then I wouldn't, you know, the commodity, for instance, oil wouldn't necessarily look great in the context of a globally slowing economy, but that's not how, that's not how it works. You have to think about who are the producers and what are they doing? And the Saudis and OPEC plus cutting back on supply is you know has been a has created a purposeful squeeze on the oil price and created you know greater balance uh, to to somewhat uh, you know from a price perspective a bit of a deficit combined with the fact that essentially paper money the futures folks the hedge funds are getting squeezed having been having held big short mm -hmm. positions in these commodities like you you sort of put those dynamics together. And and oil can certainly, and a little to some extent, other industrial commodities can trade in a way that kind of feels cyclical, but it's really sort of idiosyncratic in terms of the supply and demand in in those particular uh, markets. Hmm. Makes a ton of uh, sense, Bob. If we look uh, for great risk reward opportunities in a market environment with. Uh, rising inflation, or at least inflation way above target still, and a slowing economy, Bob. Where would you look and how would you construct ideas in such an environment? Because we, we've we kind of made the conclusion that 
equities are not super sexy here. Bonds, not super sexy here. So do we have anything to buy here? Uh, what are the risk rewards? <laughs> Is there anything? Can we yeah. find anything in the market to buy? Um, the the pain and struggle of a long-only investor uh, yeah. <laughs> shrinking that right now. Well, I think there's a couple things. I think um, when you're looking across the market, uh, I, I do think that there's a real opportunity. I sort of mentioned, you know, like these, these, you know, things like bank loans, preferreds. I know these are like very annoyingly boring corners of the market. There are no high flying NVIDIA tech stocks, but like value in yield, hmm. right? Where are there opportunities where there's value in yield that exists, right? And particularly, you know, taking credit against, you know, floaters and things like that, credit and floaters. That's the sort of stuff that, you know, has really, you know, er everyone's sort of drawn to the high flying stocks, but there's a lot of these things where you can pick and choose what you're doing. Pretty good credit quality, pretty high yields, you know, 10, 12%. That sort of stuff is, is the most interesting stuff. I think that from a long only perspective, honestly, that's in the market, but you got to do your homework on it, right? You can't just buy any old, you know, private equity LBO financing that's going to go broke anytime soon. So that that's part of the story is where, where are those opportunities, where, where is there a good risk reward in terms of the yield and the, and, and the credit quality that you're seeing? I think the other, the other part of this, which, um, you know, many people, we really haven't, we really haven't lived through this, uh, since, you know, since the 08 period is that, um, these are the sorts of environment where trend uh, and and tactical alpha really would typically uh, perform well. Um, and put, and if you think about it, like you know, we basically have the circumstance where like the economy, equity pricing, et cetera, we're sort of like standing on the uh, a bit of the edge of the cliff, and you know these sort of gentle nudges moving us uh, closer and closer to the cliff. Um, whether it's, you know, rising interest rates or, you know, government shutdown or just, you know, the the flow through the tightening that we've seen so far. We're sort of like kind of like someone's kind of gently pushing the economy and markets towards that cliff. And the way these things typically work is that once you start going, once you fall off the cliff, you keep falling. Um, and so there are there, these are environments that can actually be quite attractive to use trend strategies um, in order to to help make yourself a little more balanced, a little less long only, and a little more balanced um, in in the market, and and you'll be able to sort of tactically respond as you get these sort of self reinforcing dynamics, either you know on the long end of the bond curve or uh, in the equity market. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob, if you look at positioning right now, uh, both among what I typically label as real money players, so uh, pension funds, asset managers, et cetera, and then uh, hedge funds, do you see any strong signs that uh, markets have started to fear the recession again in positioning here? Well, I think, no, I mean, I think the, how do I say this? The, the, I think when you look at the long only managers, what you see is that there's still a lot of duration that those folks are holding. Mm. Um, and uh, is that like a value? I think it's probably more a value play than a recession play for those. You know, mm. uh, imagine being a bond manager uh, for the last 15 years and like your baseline expectation is, you know, the long end yields one and a half percent. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, four and a half percent. It's like Christmas, buy bonds, <laughs> buy bonds, right? Uh, I mean, the trouble was they were saying that when yields were 375 and 350 yeah. and uh, et cetera early in the year. Uh, but anyway, that, like, I think that's more of what's driving uh, the dynamic. And I think if you, you know, you listen to the talking heads when they get on television uh, on a regular basis, they'll all say, you know, this is the greatest opportunity for bonds that we've seen in our lifetime. And then um, I think until those folks capitulate uh, and start to really recognize that the the bond, the value, the value on bonds may not be what they think it is. I think that's the um, that's the time that eventually the position you'll start to see that positioning flip. You'll start to see those asset manager bond positions start to come off and equity positions to some extent, and that's really the sign of the final capitulation that will gr drive the final rise of bond yields that will then set us up for the other side. And that's why you just you got to be so tactical in this sort of moment, right? We've mm -hmm. all sort of like 
we've like learned over the last 15 years, like, oh, just keep buying stocks, just keep buying stocks. Like this, we're in choppy waters. We're going to be in this like really tough turn that's going to be very hard to time. And so you've got to remain very agile uh, in these sorts of environments because the ordering matters, like yields go up, stocks go down, yields go down. That's a that's a hard set of things to navigate as a as an investor. It sounds like, Bob, that a, um, a curve steep in a trade could be the optimal first trade in, in this kind of environment before we get to, to the next leg, at least if we need to see that um, the long end of the yield curve being sort of the release valve of all of this. So what do you see as the main drivers of this steepening of, of, of the yield curve in coming quarters? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do like the the curve steepener and and I mean, partially because it speaks to this dynamic of the central banks in general, you know, taking the easy, sitting on the sidelines and then, um, and then, you know, getting most of the work being done on the long end. So I, I do like that part of it. I think the curve steepener also has the benefit that we all must recognize in this business. And, you know, folks like you and I have been around long enough to have uh, made a few errors in our day recognizes that we could also be wrong, right, about what's going on, which is a real, which is a real risk, and that the economy might engage in a downturn faster than we might expect, which could easily create that steepener. But instead of the, you know, instead of the bear steepener, the bull steepener, if central banks respond relatively quickly to any sharp weakness in the economy or a credit event or things like that. And so I think that's kind of the interesting thing is like, I, I see a couple of different ways in which the steepener protects you on sort of both two plausible outcomes that I think both of which are a bit underpriced given the inversion of the yield curve right now. Hmm. Uh, keep the questions coming in. By the way, Ash will host a Q&A session with Bob uh, during the last 15 to 20 minutes uh, of the hour-long show here. Bob, um, a steeper, um, maybe just for the sake of, uh, of the broader audience, uh, is it tradable, uh, and how does one construct such a steepener view? Um, is it relevant to look at various points at the curve? How how would you go about such a process? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways that you can trade the steepener. Like, um, I uh, I'm a I'm a a simple guy. I like twos and tens. You know, good yeah. enough for me. Um, you could trade those in the futures. There's plenty of liquidity in that, um, you know, clear pricing and and stuff like that. So that's typically how I'd look at this is kind of twos and tens. Um, you know, if you wanted to trade, you know, say those, I don't know. I mean, part of what could be most interesting given the way that the, now we're getting weedy here, which is good. This is this is the nuts and bolts of how you construct trades and you have to think through these things. If you look at the SOFR curve, the um we basically have flat pricing through june or july next year in terms of uh in terms of expected uh, no expected uh uh easings and so that might be a, a way to go like you you kind of get you kind of go um go long at that point in the curve uh which could be beneficial in the event that there's like something breaks in mm. particular uh, in 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 the short term, I think the risk that that curve shifts higher, meaning that the Fed tightens really at all between now and then, is pretty low. And so I think that's probably a pretty good point of the curve to be long right in there. And then you know you can you can sell the long end, you can sell a ten year future or whatever, which is close enough. Um, and that doesn't get you the the problem is with the twos you also have what's priced into the ease you know that easing that happens in the second half of 2024 it's priced in the second half of 2024 that may come out which could actually be bad for twos um, and so maybe you maybe you target uh, something on the long side in the summer of next year. It makes a ton of sense, Bob. If we look at um, price action, but also um, market pricing of recession risks outside of U.S. borders, um, I'm talking in particular about European and Chinese assets here. Um, in case of such a, say, global recession scenario, um, is value to be found outside of the U.S. here, Bob? Well, I think when you when you look across the the um, 
the global economy, uh, and you look particularly about how assets are priced, like let's let's be frank, like you know, U.S. assets are priced, you know, I don't know, fifty to seventy-five percent higher than they are in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at equity yields. What do you get? Like uh, like the MG ETF yield is something like eight percent, and what's your yield on U.S. stocks? You know, four and a half something like that, four and a half to five, um, you know, that means that, you know, uh, you, you got to believe that U.S. equities are going to have radically better earnings growth, you know, in the medium term in order to to make the trade-off to o- overweight U.S. stocks um, to make sense. And so, you know, I look at how are equity markets priced in China. I mean, they're quite, you know, real weak conditions are priced in China. Um you know, may, maybe things could be worse. That's certainly possible. But like, you have a situation where you have, uh, you know, peas that are running in the in you know, eleven something like that, mm-hmm. and you have surveys that say that everyone, you know, every asset manager thinks that the Chinese economy is never going to open up and never going to grow again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's possible that that's the case. It, but the but the the trade-offs, the skew is certainly a bit to the upside relative to that ex- set of expectations in asset markets and sentiment. And then Europe, you know, I think the challenge with Europe is the momentum's not great because mm. the European economies are slowing down more, you know, particularly Eurozone is slowing down more rapidly than in the US, but it's also priced to be terrible. Um in terms, you know, you're getting pretty good yield uh, or UK equities, which are really global in nature, but skewed to to the commodity uh, sector. You're getting, you know, PEs that are in, again, the low, you know, 11, 12, something like that. You know, it could, it could, those UK listed companies could be a lot worse than the, than the ones in the US. But, you know, all of those sort of speak to the fact that um, US exceptionalism is priced into the market. And the odds that U.S. exceptionalism persists are not nearly as high as what's priced into the market. That's all there is to it. Mm. This has been a widow make of you over the past <laughs> 10 years, Bob. And I am I have traveled with such of you quite a few times uh, as a sell-side strategist in banks. And um, I, I, it's, it is a somehow easier view to take uh, as on the sell side than on the buy side, I think. Uh, ah, you agree I with like that. that. <laughs> I like um, that. But I, I perfectly agree with your assessment. I, I, I mean, it, it is evident that um, the European economy is is priced for a much worse scenario than the U.S. It is evident that the Chinese economy is priced for a much worse scenario than the U.S. The question is just whether you want to bet against the U.S. anyway. Um, and right now, I'm, I'm probably not willing to, uh, even though I, I admit to uh, the pricing being as you described it. But bef- before I, um, I I leave you for the uh, Q&A session with Ash, uh, I'd like... Uh, your take as sort of a concluding remark to this discussion on a boom or a recession and how you profit from it, um, on how to across assets map whether a recession is priced in. What's your thinking on how to do it across asset classes? And is there a bulletproof methodology in terms of how to assess these recession risks and to which extent they're priced in? Yeah, I mean... the 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 main thing you've got to do is you've got to you got to look um, you got to start with what's priced into each one of these markets and and the way you do that in you know in the in the bond market or really it's in the short rate market is to look at that path of expected uh, interest rate changes particularly in that sort of first two years to sort of understand what's priced in there and the you know very valuable to to look at. Um, to to really look at what is priced into expected earnings growth uh, in terms of you know uh, earnings growth in the next year and the next two years to really understand how uh, how how those you know what the expectations are there I think you know typically if you I don't know look at the uh, like the fact set earnings insight or something like that um, and look at the analyst expectations those are typically a little bit elevated so you know you have to take a little bit of a haircut around that. Uh, but you sort of put those pieces together, and what you see is um, uh, you try and create essentially a connected narrative, right? And that's really what you have to do because you can't really quite 
uh, understand the motivations. The, the, the pricing is just the facts. And then the question is what economic scenario could plausibly create that pricing and what's the likelihood of that scenario? And so like right now what you see is you see modest interest rate cuts over the course of the next, you know, uh, couple years and you see very, very elevated equity earnings growth expected and you put those two things together and it kind of looks like everyone's pricing in a soft landing. That's mm -hmm. basically what, what the scenario is that would achieve those outcomes. And so that's kind of what you have to do is to kind of, kind of look at the facts, but also then create the narrative. It was a tremendous pleasure discussing these recession risks with you, Bob. I will uh, leave the floor to uh, Ash Bennington for the Q&A session. Andreas, always fun. Great to catch up. Hi, Bob. That was fantastic. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. That was fantastic. I get to like hang out in the bullpen for 45 minutes and watch that interview uh, and think of questions <laughs> to ask you. I mean, it's just a really compelling conversation. Uh, and it really does feel, uh, based on your remarks, that you think we're at kind of something of an inflection point here. Uh, having this conversation, obviously, after the hawkish hold yesterday from the Fed, uh, it's an interesting moment. We got a lot of great questions from our audience. I just wanted to jump in and start with this. Uh, this first one uh, from William. How high do you expect the 10, 30 year rate to rise. So he's asking about the long end of the curve. Uh, what do you ultimately see being the direction of those rates over the longer term? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the, the, I don't know how much people heard, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll start again at the term premium, which is typically you'd expect long end rates to trade at a higher yield than the cash rate. And I think what we've seen, you know, we basically have about as negative a term premium as we've had in a very, very long time. And so the idea that well, we're late in the cycle, which might lead people to expect to have cuts, uh, you know, in the medium term. We could easily have a circumstance where, um, where you know, long end rates start to move up. Let's say closer to on par with short end rates, um, which would be you know something like 50 or 100 basis points of further elevation. And if you think about that from the perspective of how it might affect broader asset prices, particularly stock prices. You know, something like a 550 bond yield would probably hit stocks in the range of, you know, 10 or 15 percent, which is about what's necessary to start that sort of negative economic dynamic uh, playing out. And so something in that range is where you start to see, I think, value in the long end. But we should also recognize there's a lot we don't know. Uh, and so it's a little bit, you know, feeling uh, feeling the markets as uh, as they're as they're uh, playing out. You know, talking about feeling the markets and doing a little bit of a, a broader, uh, deeper dive into this question, one of the phrases that we've been hearing most recently uh, is this notion of higher for longer, uh, obviously with the dot plot moving up yesterday in terms of the expectation of rates remaining higher for longer periods of time. One of the questions that came up, and there's a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, last night by Greg Ipp uh, asking the question about whether or not uh, the natural policy rate, the neutral rate of interest uh, has in fact increased. These are a longer term uh, dynamics, things like population, supply and demand of capital. But the question on the table, uh, and I've read it raised elsewhere, is have we seen a shift uh, in the fundamental neutral policy rate. This is the rate at which uh, it's neither expansionary nor contractionary, uh, the rate at which inflation uh, and unemployment remain stable over time. Have we seen a change in that variable, sometimes called R-star by economists? Well, I, th I think it's a, it's a confusing question because if you look at the fundamental drivers of R-star, which is meant to be long-term, the long-term interest rate pressures, we're in an environment where you'd actually expect long-term neutral rates to be falling. And the reason why that is, is demographic deterioration um, combined with elevated debt levels should pretend a lower interest rate, lower neutral interest rate in an economy. And at the same time, what's happening is the Fed just keeps hiking rates and the economy doesn't seem to be slowing down. And so they're sitting around right. going, like, I'm, you know, talked to a few Fed economists in my day, and they're sort of sitting there going like, well, I don't understand what's going on. Like our models are saying it's going down and the reality seems like it's going up. And and the issue is, I mean, first of all, R-Star is kind of a stupid concept um, because it's not that useful in setting monetary policy. Um, right. What is useful is understanding what needs to happen in order for the economy to slow down. And I think what we're seeing is the fact that you have to, that the lack of sensitivity, tactical sensitivity of the economy to interest rate hikes means that the effective interest rate 
that creates a meaningful slowing of of uh, of economic growth is higher than most people expected, right? And so that's not our star. That's not the neutral thirty-year interest rate. That's right. the what's the interest rate the Fed needs to deliver today? Um, right. And so I think that's the most relevant question uh, when you're right. thinking about it. And the answer is like higher, right? Meaningfully higher than most people expected. Yeah, and 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 you're right about this sort of this open question about the usefulness of the concept of R star. Uh, it's something that can kind of only be extrapolated uh, based on actual inputs and actual outputs. So really, what's the what's the relevancy when you can actually look and say, hey, okay, uh, the actual rate is at X, and these are what we're seeing in terms of the variables we care most about, specifically employment, inflation. Right, right, and I think that you know, th I mean, this is this is my. You learn, you know, don't listen to the to the economists, the academic economists. It's not like not that useful. Like the thing that people you should listen to are people who are economists who have money on the line, who have learned the real, the practical realities how to think about it. So yeah, sure, there's hundreds of economists sitting around trying to, you know, fight which academic paper is smarter than the other, sounds smarter than the other one about our star. But like, you know, <laughs> the real thing that matters is. Uh, you know, very practically, how is this, you know, how is this economy working? Um, and how are these interest rates flowing, these interest rate hikes flowing through? And that's really, as investors, like focus on that. Um, stay away from the academic uh, discourse. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very funny. All right, next question comes from David Sims. Uh, Bob, what's your view on the US dollar? We should say, obviously, DXY right now up over 105. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, the dollar has, uh, you know, despite all the claims of, of the death of the dollar here, uh, it continues to be relatively uh, strong. Um, and uh, you know, those of us who've been trading currency markets for like twenty years uh, have been hearing that for a long time. So every time you hear uh, the death of the dollar, you know, just just remember, people have been saying the same thing for like, I mean, they've been saying the same thing for like forty years. Um, and the, you know, and the reasons are always good. The logic is the always- The reasons always yeah. feel good, right. but um, you know, it's, uh, it's in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And that is really what the dollar sort of structurally is all about, right? It may be ugly, but it is the least ugly, right. uh, certainly uh, long-term investable asset in capital markets across the the- the world. Um, and so I think, you know, putting aside those things, when you start to think tactically about the dollar and, and relative monetary policy conditions, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing that the U.S. and its lack of sensitivity to interest rate hikes um, and its stronger economic conditions are putting us in a position, you know, putting the U.S. in a position where it can run, you know, stronger growth and tighter monetary policy than uh, many other places in the world. That probably will persist in the sense of, you know, Europe is probably uh, weak, you know, Europe is weakening uh, a little bit more than the U.S. And, and the U.K. as well. And so some pressure on those European currencies on a forward looking basis makes sense. Um, and similarly, you know, Japan, there's, you know, the next time Japan uh, will have 5% interest rates, 5.5% interest rates, I think we'll probably all be dead. So, you know, probably not something to worry about there. In terms of Japan, you know, really getting on their high horse and tightening monetary policy meaningfully on par with the U.S. And so, you know, the U.S. the dollar is um, the pricing is relatively elevated. The U.S. still looks like it's an advantageous position. And so, you know, of all the honestly, of all the assets that are out there, the dollar is kind of like, yeah, maybe it trickles up a little bit. It's not that interesting a trade right now. A um, lot more interesting stuff going on in the bond markets, I think. Yeah, this is this is kind of the uh, least dirty shirt in the pile of laundry. Things. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about bond markets uh, and and what your view is there, uh, where you see the most opportunity. Uh, I know that Andreas covered some of this already, but you talked about this concept of value and yield. Where do you see the most value in yield? Well, I think the the most value in yield. I mean, the 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 picture of uh, uh, of short end uh, yield. Uh, is is pretty is pretty attractive, particularly when you compare it with credit uh, style. You know, with with some credit, uh, you know, maybe moderate moderate term one two year, uh, you know, investment grade corporate um, or higher up in the capital stack type assets where you can start to get a trade off. Like in the event that you get a, a spread expansion, you're probably going to get some cuts get priced in and that those, those two, um, 
have some nice negative correlation benefits in there and you're not as sensitive to sort of the pressure on the long end of the duration supply. I think that's kind of, you know, and there's a bunch of different ways to, to, to look at that. Um, you know, there's preferreds, floater preferreds, um, there's, you know, bank loans, um, you know, all of that stuff is the sort of stuff that has modest credit risk relative to a relatively elevated yield. Um, and, you know, in this environment where there's not, when the, when essentially risk premia seem compressed in a lot of different places, you kind of want to find those corners of the market that just haven't gotten the type of, you know, cross asset flow that have really bid them up meaningfully. And so, you know, I think those are the sort of areas uh, that are that are the most interesting in in the yield space. Yeah, it's interesting. You said uh, that to a certain extent, the value may not be there uh, in terms of what people perceive as the value in the bond market. You also make the point uh, of how pricey stocks are right now, S&P trading at a PE of around, I think about 22. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, what else do you allocate toward? Uh, is there a sense, you mentioned gold and energy. Uh, do you have a particular play in the energy space, for example, uh, where you see an especially high degree of opportunity relative to the risk and volatility? Well, I don't really trade individual names. I'm sure there's there's got to be some good, uh, you know, I don't know, there's probably somebody drilling in Canada that makes a lot of sense and has nice convexity to, to, um, to oil price rises. Uh, it's been a long time since I've uh, been uh, been through that uh, down in the details of that. You know, so mostly I'm trading macro assets and asset classes, and um, you know, oil still has the the still has some positive convexity, although that is fast eroding as we try as we get almost to the triple digits uh, in prices uh, in terms of you know upside growth potential relative to what's priced in. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a tough, <laughs> I, you know, this is the problem is we sort of go through all these asset classes like bonds, you know, long end bonds, term premium seems too, too low stocks, earnings are priced in, you know, earnings growth is priced in to be too high, you know, commodities. Well, you know, oil at a hundred, looks a lot less interesting than oil at, you know, 70 in the seventies, Gold has outperformed bonds by 60 or 70% over the last few years. So, you know, starting to raise questions about it, whether it's still going to continue that outperformance. Uh, yeah. So the, it's a, it's a tough, tough to be a long only guy, uh, in this environment. Yeah. Here's a question from Lena. I don't know if I can answer this one, but the question is, uh, what is the best way for retail investors to position gold? And then she also asks, does Bob have any opinion about Bitcoin? Uh, so on gold, I mean, I trade gold, uh, I mean, you can trade futures if, if you're a big enough size, you can also trade IAU, the ETFs are good, you know, good enough, highly liquid type bid ask spreads, reasonably cheap in terms of operating. They're a little less tax. They're, they're a little less tax efficient than you might like, but you know, that's how it goes, uh, when you're trading gold, given the, the, the tax structure of it. Um, Bitcoin, uh, I, uh, I, I, my like uh, 30 second background on Bitcoin is that I, back in my Bridgewater days, uh, led Bridgewater's research on Bitcoin, went through, got, you know, got a good uh, understanding of the asset and basically said, this looks nothing like my sort of macro considerations and the macro drivers that I understand. And so, you know, I'm just not going to trade an asset that I don't understand the fundamental macroeconomic properties of. And I still basically hold that view today, which is, um, I'm sure there's lots of very smart thinking about Bitcoin uh, and and what's driving it. Uh, I, I just don't, it, it's just not mainly driven by macroeconomic drivers in a time frame that, uh, that at least I'm trading at. And so right. um, I just, you know, you don't have to trade everything. That's the most important thing to recognize as a trader. You don't have to trade every market. You don't have to be in the market every day. You should <laughs> trade the things where you have an edge and where you see good, you know, uh, risk return opportunities and, you know, so it's okay. You don't have to trade everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think one of the smartest answers can you can just be. I, I just don't have a call on that. It's just outside. Yeah, I just don't. Cost. I just don't understand it well enough to be able to feel like I've edged. That's all there is to it. Yeah, very well said, uh, Bob. Great conversation. Great conversation with Andreas. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, obviously, you guys covered a tremendous number of topics. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Well, I think the most important thing. You know, everyone likes to talk about stocks, but. In the next three or six months, it's going to be all about the bond market uh, and how that plays out is going to drive 
basically how asset prices evolve uh, in, you know, in, in the medium term. And in that sense, you know, the ordering really matters. While we probably will get a, to a recession, uh, you know, across the developed world economies, uh, the ordering really matters that first yields are going to have to rise uh, and asset prices and stocks are going to have to fall before we get to the opportunity that it makes sense to start to buy bonds. And so uh, keep that in mind. Don't get ahead of it. You'll get burned and uh, and and stay nimble. This is going to be uh, an exciting uh, three or six months coming up. <laughs> exciting in the sense of the old uh, Asian curse. Uh, may you live in exciting times. That's right. There certainly will be interesting times. No question about it. <laughs> Bob, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great fun. Great conversation. Uh, listen, before we wrap here, I also want to mention a conversation that Rao Powell is having with Beth Kindig tomorrow on Real Vision. I got a chance to get a little bit of a sneak peek of an early cut of this, and it's really just fantastic and interesting stuff. Uh, it's a conversation mostly about AI, its effects on the tech industry, uh, tech investing, and how, according to Beth, it's the biggest investment opportunity of our lifetimes. I found this uh, an interesting perspective. You know, most folks uh, who are analysts come to this from the financial side, and then they learn the tech piece. Uh, Beth did it the other way around. She was a tech analyst out in Silicon Valley, uh, assessing various technologies from M&A activity and other uh, corporate actions. She developed a really deep understanding of the way the technology worked. She was also long NVIDIA uh, far before this massive run-up that we've seen in the price of the equity. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Check it out tomorrow on Real Vision. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KCCA ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KCCA forward slash Real Vision.